like to request your kind attention. I trust you've been zooming in for most of the day, chasing Vedanas. watching sailboats and of emotions and uh, shuttling, doing shuttle diplomacy between stabilizing and investigating. For tonight I would like to kind of zoom out a bit and uh, look at the bigger picture. I would like to say a few things about the place of that citta in Buddhist psychology. I would like to look at what can happen to this citta when it is afflicted by dukkha, by unsatisfactoriness and its many forms. I would like to give a little glimpse at a dynamic the Buddha calls thirst. Chris has referred to as Tanha or Trishna last night. And uh, if all goes well, there is time for a little look at how mindfulness, sati, can help with the transformation of dukkha and of tanha. So let me start that term citta. Somebody asked me how to spell it and spelt it wonderfully correct in writing his or her note. So it's C-I-T-T-A. This is a term in both Sanskrit and Pali and it is probably best to tr translate it as mind or heart. It's not quite easy to to find a proper equivalent in, in English or other European languages. I, I'd like to read you a little something that may help, just to give you a few snapshots. <coughs> the term citta occurs both in the early Sanskrit and Pali discourses. Um, the concept refers to a notion of mind that encompasses uh, both cognitive faculties, affective faculties and resonant qualities and uh, qualities of volition, so technically co-native functions. Um, usually translators render it as mind and heart, which are, which is lovely in some ways. It's not terribly psychologically precise, but it is um, conveniently encompassing, how, even though it may be deemed to be somewhat vague. Um, what it really refers to, and that's maybe in contrast to some of the other terms that the Buddha uses for mind, um, it particularly refers to the felt seat of our experience. Yeah? It's literally at the heart of our experience. If we are asked how we're doing, then we consult the citta. Um, we intuit that citta as basically our experiential center. It's the habitat from which we experience ourselves and the world. And uh, it does give the impression of being coherent and belonging to me and uh, of being of one piece. However, any even cursory introspection will quickly make us aware that this is not the case, that this citta actually 
is a highly dynamic pattern, a continuum of moments that arise and cease and uh, keep reconstellating. So the chitta does not have a, a nucleus. It is not a self, it is not a soul, it is not an entity. Strictly speaking, it's also not a process. It's something, it's the state of the seat of your experience. Think of it that way. If we look at what the old texts say about it, let me give you a few examples. <clears throat> there is great uh, acknowledgement that it is generative, so it produces stuff. I briefly referred to three functions yesterday, handling sense impingement, reacting to sense impingement, and being capable of understanding. Yeah, this is a very untechnical sort of... Uh, tripartite notion of what the chitta does. So it's that which makes us sensitive, it's that which makes us reactive or responsive, and it's that which is capable of understanding. So meditators try to cut back on the lower two tiers of this uh, activity to maximize the, the resources for the third tier, that of understanding, which in Buddhist understanding, it is understanding which makes the heart free, not will, not uh, morals, not power, um, not petitioning the gods. Uh, what makes us free, what liberates the heart, truly is that which is capable of understanding in us. So that's why wisdom is really one of the cardinal virtues of Buddhism. And if you're interested in the growth of wisdom, you will have to look at a few things in your own mind and in the minds of others that really make it necessary that you also be compassionate. Because some of the things you will see are not flattering. And unless a considerable degree of self-compassion, basis for the compassion with others, you will not take the medicine of wisdom. Yeah. So we have two cardinal virtues now, uh, one of them being wisdom and one of them being compassion. There some interesting quotes about this chitta. One of them is said, it is not easy to give a simile for how quickly the mind changes. So at one point the chitta is referred to um, a monkey that flies through the forest and grasps a branch, swings itself to the next, releases the last one and takes the next one. And the chitta is de described as that which is ceaselessly in action. It ceaselessly is in motion. And while it flies through the air at great velocity, it keeps doing the same things, uh, latching onto one branch, getting, uh, what's the word? Getting momentum, yeah? And swinging itself to the next branch and grasping the next. So this kind of monkey in the forest, if you've ever seen monkeys in the forest, um, I have had the pleasure of spending some time with um, gibbons, wonderful, not monkeys, but apes actually, uh, wonderfully majestic animals. They can do sort of six meter jumps and are great acro acrobats and absolute joys. Something in you is, just, uh, is thrilled by watching at the beauty of their movement. So the chitta is rapid in its changes. It can be 
uh, a mindset, a mind state. It can be something like mentality. Um, it alters from moment to moment, but its patterns, its the recurring of its patterns, become equivalent to something like character. Um, it is formed any moment and set up by aggregates uh, of experience, um, and in its activity, it in turns, in turn, determines uh, these uh, khandhas. A famous, often quoted passage describes the nature of the chitta as inherently luminous. I'll spare you the Pali bits here. The chitta may be malleable, pliable, lofty, abundant, immeasurable, or it can be shrunken, reactive, obscured by adventitious defilements. Occasionally, it may even turn into the proverbial monkey mind. Yeah, I, I, I can prove that this is a canonical term. Yeah, this is, the monkey mind is a proper Pali term, kapijitang. Yeah, it occurs several times. So if you think monkey mind is um, um, Californian invention or so, then <coughs> no. Sometimes the chitta has a mind of its own. Quote, a monk makes his chitta turn according to his wish. He does not turn by the chitta's wish. So, implying that the chitta obviously has some autonomy going on. And uh, the chitta can be pleased or displeased. That person does not appeal to my chitta. Also, your chitta was pleased with me. And um, it can be taken or remain untouched by gains, favors and flattery. A chitta tamed, cleansed, purified, well-developed through cultivation. This is what you've been doing today, chitta bhavana. It can become unshakable. It can become capable of deepest intuition. It recognizes its own good, the good of others and the common good. And it is referred to as a mind like a diamond. Vajiru papamajito, wonderful image. A mind like a diamond, clear, transparent, powerful. The highest concentration of the carbon molecule in this, on this planet. Yeah? Most importantly, if understood as truly is, yatabhuta, it can be completely liberated. Yeah. So I spare you further lengthy quotes of this. You get an idea that this chitta is fairly central in... Uh, not just Buddhist teaching, but in the ex experience. Yeah. The Buddha referred to a number of terms relating to mind. One of them, mano, which usually uh, refers more to the intellectual side of mind. And vijnana, which usually refers to something like um, the more particularizing awareness uh, through sense faculties. So these are the latter two are more technical terms. Whenever the Buddha speaks of something we cultivate, something we develop, something we liberate, something we purify, he uses the term citta. Later Buddhist traditions uh, were a bit nervous about the liberality of the Buddha's understanding of that citta. They were afraid that people would turn the teaching on citta to become a self again. Yeah? So th there was a certain nervousness in Buddhist commentarial tradition that such a citta could be mistaken for a solid entity, a self, a substance, a soul. Yeah? 
This is not, this is very clearly not what the Buddha has meant, but I think the nervousness of the commentators uh, and later interpreters of uh, early Buddhist Pali discourses um, comes with some loss and their nervousness then uh, translates into chopping the chitta up in many, many mind functions and trying to speak only of these mind functions rather than speaking of a reasonably coherent experientially clearly felt seat of our experience. So while the citta is definitely not a self or a soul or my true individuality, it is definitely not just a series of chopped up mind moments, yeah? as we are sometimes taught in late Rabidamma. That citta uh, is, interestingly enough, early Buddhist teachings insists that the citta is both capable of highest intuitions and also it can be seduced into greed, it can be seduced into anger, it can be uh, brought into confusion. And cultivating the factors and functions of the citta that make it most l likely to deeply understand things and intuit the nature of our experience of ourselves and of the world is the major task of meditation. So that notion of meditation, of bhavana, um, I think I referred to it briefly in one of the earlier evenings, is the big project of Buddhist mind cultivation. You know, steep, stilling this mind, infusing this mind with the qualities of empathetic connectedness called Brahma-Vihara and developing wisdom, developing insight, developing understanding are the major features of citta-bhavana. This is what we're engaged in. Mindfulness is an indispensable but small part of this project. Yeah. So uh, a few things can happen to this citta. One of the things that happens to this citta is, uh, is called dukkha in Buddhist teachings. This is a big term. We translate that often as suffering. And while the term is not wrong, it's much too short. Yeah? In Pali, the term means about that much. And in English, the word suffering means about that much, just to be blunt. So um, that, let me say something about the term. It is quite amusing. The, originally, the, the term has an etymology that takes us back into the uh, invasions of a, a, a people who came from Asia Minor and some, into the Indian subcontinent sometime in the second millennium BC. And these people had uh, horses. They were successful militarily because they had uh, carts and uh, uh, chariots, war chariots. And they basically overwhelmed the indigenous populations. They squeezed the Dravidians to the uh, eastern side of India and the, uh, came down the Indus Valley and displaced the Indus Valley population, which uh, was existing there. Uh, population about which we only know that they were highly civilized. They had cities. Uh, heating systems and, you know, quite amazing people. We know very little about them. Their, their scripts are still not deciphered. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, our in Aryan invaders basically took over the Indian subcontinent and uh, settled. And these uh, gentlemen used um, the term su and du, or su and dus are prefixes, which mean basically good and bad. 
And the word ka, that's the second point of sukha, happiness, or dukkha, suffering. The word ka means something like space, or sky, or ether. But initially it meant particularly a hole. And it's the hole, it's an axle hole. Yeah? So if you have, and you have to understand this, if you're a charioteer driver or a cart driver and you spend hours a day on your cart or on your chariot, you have an idea what a good axle hole is or a bad axle hole. Yeah? If you have a good axle hole, you have a smooth ride. If you have a bad axle hole, you have a bumpy ride. Yeah? So these guys knew something about a rough ride. Yeah? So the initial meaning of the word dukkha is having a bad axle hole. <laughs> and consequently, you're going to have a bad ride. You're going to have a, rum a bumpy ride. With some liberty, we could say, you know, if you're experiencing dukkha, you're in a bad hole. And if you're experiencing sukha, you're in a good hole. So this is, a, this is a term that is much broader than what we would call suffering, if we mean by suffering an ailment. Yeah? In many ways we could say uh, dukkha is a, an experience that something is painful, that it is difficult, that it is flawed, that it is in, inherently not satisfactory, that we, it's full of imperfection, and a kind of a vague sense that things never quite measure up. Yeah? It never quite hits the spot. Um, that has many, many dimensions. Buddhist tradition usually refers to three types of that. The first one is simply about emotional and physical pain uh, and everything that goes with it. So that's everything from um, basically frustration, rejection, disappointment, uh, feelings of lack or want, right to downright bone-crushing agony. Yeah? So the straightforward understanding. This is where suffering just about meets it. Yeah? We use suffering for emotional and for physical suffering. The second dimension of this suffering is a, a dimension that has to do with things having a fatal tendency to turn into their opposites. It's the kind of the reversal of fortune type of experience. It is the suffering that we incur when something pleasant, agreeable, good, enriching changes. Yeah. It's a very powerful type of suffering. It's a suffering that we um, even anticipate or, or apprehend more, to, more correctly. And a suffering we have lots of. We lose things. We are disappointed, we are disenchanted, we are saddened. Uh, and even before that happens, we may apprehend that this takes place. So it, it fills us with some degree of anxiety. The third type of suffering is maybe the most difficult one to recognize and uh, is rooted in the inherently conditioned nature of all things we can experience. It means that nothing, even if you get it just right, is going to stay that way. Either the thing is going to change or you're going to gradually run out of appreciation for it. Yeah. Um, it's the, probably the most profound type of suffering that it has to do very plainly with maintenance. Yeah? You're continually having to put in effort to keep things at a good or at a good enough level. Things just crumble underneath your fingers. Yeah? 
governments crumble, houses crumble, relationships crumble, uh, businesses crumble. You know, unless you keep investing, keep reinventing, keep maintaining, keep infusing, keep inspiring, do things, things crumble. Yeah, meditation practice is no different. You know, the fact that you had a great retreat some 30 years ago. Um, yeah, it's an inspiring memory, but it doesn't necessarily mean you don't need to meditate anymore. So, one of the responses to suffering is something Buddhist teachings call desire, thirst. And the implication is this is a type of thirst that can ultimately not be quenched. Uh, for God, it was Chris or Jaya referring to desire in positive ways. There are many different types of desire and there is positive types of desire. Desire that leads to this sublimation, that lead to an ennobling of the mind, that lead to the strengthening of wholesome factors. And there is obviously desires that seek gratification and that create deeper ruts and deeper forms of bondage. Um, Desire is both, in some way, the cause of suffering. You know, by following desire, we deepen our bondage and our experience of suffering. And desire is also the reaction to suffering. If we uh, are having a bad day, we want to go home and uh, eat chocolates, or we want to find comfort with something, or we want to uh, hit our pillow, or something like that. Yeah, there's different types of desire. Again, the word in English is much smaller than the Buddhist equivalent. Let me, as a kind of footnote, um, outline three major forms of it. The, f the one is the desire to have sensory experiences. This is the easiest to understand. It's the thing that wants me to have gratifying sensory experiences. Pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant forms of contact, pleasant forms, nice company, pleasant forms of things to eat and drink and see and listen to. Yeah, that's straightforward. The Kama Tanha, desire for sensory experience is wonderful. If you add to the sensory experience not just the things to eat and to see and to touch, but also the things to think and conceive of and play with mentally as the sixth sense, yeah? Uh, then you get an idea what desire of the senses means. Whether you sink your white teeth into a hamburger or whether you um, recite uh, a poet, a, a, your favorite poem in the midday quiet of a forest, you walk in alone. Both of them are, have to do with desire. Yeah, if you do them, if you look forward to them, one may be a little better taste. Uh, but both of them are sensory experiences, yeah? Uh, the, the second type of desire is already more complicated and may slightly go beyond what we uh, in the West call desire. The second type of desire is about abstract qualities. It is my desire for things like love, like power, like safety, comfort, control, uh, reputation, acknowledgement, validation, yeah? These are abstract qualities, which I'm sure you'll agree with me. Many of us invest lots of energy to get those, yeah? They're not things we taste. They're not things we touch with our fingers. They're not things we can see. They're not things we, we can feel. But they are 
definitely experiential qualities. Yeah? They are things we can long for, we can invest time and energy to get, we can regret losing, we can dread losing even while we have them. Yeah? So they can definitely become objects of desire. So this is bhavatan, the desire to become. The third one is completely off the map of Western psychology. It's uh, the w literal translation is the desire to unbecome. Yeah? And that basically means that you want to get rid of something. It's the desire that something specific be gone, locked up, shot to the moon, annihilated, disappearing, out of your sight. Yeah? It's the desire that says, I want to weigh 10 kilos less. It's the desire, I want to get rid of the other party. I, it's the desire I, that you may approach your own meditation with saying, I need to get rid of my anger. Yeah. It's a very focused desire. And it's a desire connected with a wish that something disappear, be gone, be out of sight, that you be rid of that. It's a very violent type of desire. Uh, it can lead to suicide as one particular cross form of it. It can lead you to, uh, to forms of anesthetization. Yeah, it, is, it is the mother of self-destruction, basically. Yeah? This type of desire is, underpins all forms of self-destruction. It's not just a tonnetal strive, as some well-meaning people familiar with Freudian analysis have suggested. It's a lot more than that. It's, uh, you know, when you're kind of back home and you're brushing teeth and you're squeezing the last remainder of the toothpaste out of your empty tube and then with a relish throw the ugly, empty, useless thing into the bin. Yeah? That's the gratification of a harmless piece of vibhavatanha when you just f hear the clanking sound of this useless, ugly uh, re remainder of the toothpaste tube in, in the bin. Yeah? That would be a harmless example of this. You all recognize that. Or it's, you kind of cruise your flat with two empty cardboard boxes and say, by the end of the day, these will be full of chunk I'm going to throw out. Yeah? And you're engaging in vibhavatanha. Yeah? So these types of desire <coughs> are both causing the experience of dukkha and they are our desperate attempts to get out of the experience of dukkha. Now, even if you have decide, decided that you want to get out of the experience of dukkha with the help of desire uh, and uh, an attempt that is likely to fail, but um, sometimes we do things we know better, uh, we, we knew better not to do or we just default back to a pattern because our knowledge isn't strong enough to transform the habit. Even if you decide that to get out of the experience of dukkha, you pursue the path of desire, of, of thirst, a number of things may go wrong. Yeah? So, uh, firstly, one of the things that may go wrong is that you simply don't get what you desire. Yeah? So you end up frustrated, you end up angry, you end up bitter or despondent. So that's a very simple way. Many of our desires are not fulfilled, let's face it. Yeah? Uh, sometimes we even have desires we don't quite know what they are. That's particularly bad because you're in a 
perfectly hopeless situation to fulfill a desire that you don't quite know what it is. Yeah. But even if you do identify the goals of your desire and aim, take aim, you may simply not get there. Or somebody may get there faster or, you know, it, it'll maybe be beyond your range or so. And um, that is, is quite a difficult situation, yeah. which often leaves us wounded, it leaves us slighted, it leaves us uh, despondent, that's maybe the worst. Uh, it leaves us despirited in some way. Yeah. It's maybe the worst situation to be in. And many of you know about depression, either because you know it from yourself or you know it because you've worked with people with depression. Uh, that's one of the features, isn't it? Being dispirited is a really sad situation. It's when we have lost faith in our own capacity to be happy, when we have lost faith in our own capacity to effect things, when we have lost faith that a sadness that, has, uh, that we are beset with is something that can be overcome or that can uh, alight and leave us uh, cleared. Um, if we have given up on this, if we're so dispirited that we think being depressed is our true reality and th for the rest of our time we're going to stay in that state, then this is a this is a very unfortunate situation. Yeah. Now it may be that we do fulfill our desires. Some desires can be fulfilled, but interestingly enough, many things can go wrong if our desires are fulfilled. I guess I quoted. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was early in this course or in the last course where I quoted the famous Wilde, you know, just two tragedies. One is not to get what you want, and the second one, the real one, is to get it. Yeah. So there is um, there's more truth in this. So if we do get what we want, we may find out it simply doesn't deliver. Yeah. It may find we may find out what we desired is we are not the people who we thought we would be if we have achieved what we have desired. Often enough, that's the surprise, you know. The stuff is exactly as good as they describe. You know, I finally got it, and I just find out, yes, I can't floor the thing, but <laughs> it's me who somehow is not as resonant with it as I would have imagined, you know. I'm somehow, it doesn't, it doesn't hit the spot, yeah. It doesn't deliver. So I may be quite bewildered, I may be disenchanted, it may, me leave, it may leave me confused. If, if not that, what then? You know, what do I then want? Um, there may be other things going wrong. I, I may get it, but I may, I may not get enough of it. Yeah? That's particularly unpleasant. Yeah? We're kind of left high and dry in some way. Yeah? I get in a state of longing, or I may go greedy, I may look for somebody to blame, um, I may just be grieving. Yeah. Often when we don't get enough of something we, we started to taste, you know, we grieve. Yeah. Or just simply feel this immense disappointment. Sometimes I may get it, it's exactly as good as I anticipated. It's delightful. I really savor every drop. I cherish every moment of it. And then I start worrying. Will I get it again? Will this stay with me? Will this last? 
Can I keep up the novelty of it? Will my appreciation wane? Yeah. So I'm kind of getting anxious about maintaining. And I realize it's never going to get better than what I have, because what I have is already good. So I can't improve on this. But, I, I, but there's an, an incipient fear that basically it's going to taper off in some way. I may lose it. Or somebody may take it away from me. Yeah? So I, I begin to worry, I begin to protect, I begin to strategize, to maintain. Yeah? And this state starts to take increasing amount of effort. Yeah? Um, still, other things may happen. Uh, maybe the most tragic thing that may happen to follow Mr. Wilde is, you know, I get it, it's great. And then I start getting bored with it. You know? I start getting used to it. I witness the dreadful onset of the law of diminishing returns. You know, it's, it was great to look at from a distance. It was exquisite to be there. It was a delight to wake up there again. A day later, it seemed still wonderful. A day later, it seemed good, but kind of increasingly normal. Yeah. And, you know, another day later, I was slightly wondering what next, you know, where, where from here? You know, that one's ticked off the list, and what now, you know? So, I guess, uh, in your smile, I recognize something that you, you probably know this. You've, you're old enough to have experienced some of this. In either case, you know, I may end up longing, I may end up worried or anxious, I may end up in a sort of preoccupied way protecting and my protection measures increase and they start to diminish my capacity to appreciate. Um, I may spend more and more time in dissatisfaction, in discontent and maybe uh, a really deep one is meaninglessness, you know, having everything and not being able to appreciate or enjoy. And um, there is a profound wisdom in the Buddhist teaching on the insatiable nature of the mind that tries to find happiness with grief. Um, in today's terminology, uh, support comes from unexpected corn corners. Um, there's some fa fabulous research on, on um, neurophysiology which, and neuropsychology which come up with some really disheartningly uh, parallel statements. They, they use different terms, but um, I've read some very fascinating work about uh, the discrepancy in the curve between what uh, psychologists call incentive value, yeah? that's the amount something seems desirable to us, that's the amount of what we want, and the curve that depicts gratification value. You know, if you know anything about neuropsychology, then you know these are two different systems in your mind. You know? One is about dopamine, and one is about serotonin. And these two, these two curves, unfortunately, gape apart quite dramatically. In other words, the implication of this is that while our capacity to want things does not decrease, you know, not even with age, yeah? that's the really sad news. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? 
the, our capacity to appreciate and receive and experience true sensory gratification, you know, measurable serotonin release type gratification, okay, in our hedonic hotspot, you know, this curve tapers off while the incentive value curve does not taper off, you know. Uh, this is really, if you know anything about addiction, you will probably know that, and I'll bore you with this. But you can become addicted of the very anticipation of gratification, irrespective of the gratification is actually accessible to you or sets in when you get what you desire. That is really sad because it means that irrespective of how much you actually get, you still get hooked on your dopamine hook, so to say, on the anticipation of something that if you do get it, it doesn't do anywhere near what you expected it to do. And if you don't get it, your dopamine does not decrease. You know, tests with smokers particularly indicated that the dopamine does not decrease precisely when, this, when, when the addiction impulse is not gratified. You know? So you get the highest hits when you actually don't get the stuff. And as these systems are uh, operating, it means you keep seeking for something that even if you get it, will not deliver. You know, it's inherent that it does not deliver. You know, two and a half thousand years after the Buddha's teaching on Tanha, this is really disturbing evidence coming from a completely unexpected corner. You know. um, it also means that we can probably get addicted to just about anything because what makes you finally addicted is your capacity to anticipate and your dopamine hit gets connected to your anticipatory capacity rather than the gratification value. Even if you get it and the gratification is low, you may still get hooked on the addiction. You get your addiction going on the, anticip on the anticipation of a gratification you're never going to get. Yeah. And even if you do get it, it it's so low that it doesn't play a role anymore. It doesn't do anywhere near what you expected it to do. I think the Buddha in his um, intuition and without neuropsychological terminology uh, hit exactly that nail on the head with his teaching on the unquenchableness of thirst. So what can we do? One of the things we can do, and now we're <coughs> gradually getting to the good news, one of the things we can do is we can cultivate mindfulness. The Buddha was a spiritual realist and pragmatist. He realized that the major problem is we do not understand. Now, there's many types of not understanding. One of them is, you know, one type of ignorance is simply lack of sensitivity on a sort of energetic level. Ignorance, avijja or moha, delusion, is simply not being sensitive enough to pick up on what's going on around you. Very simple. At another level, uh, ignorance comes across as um, basically you don't want to know. You have access to information, data, understanding that you try to not have because the implication of which may be uncomfortable. So we try not to acknowledge what we actually know, you know. We try to be more ignorant than we are in the hope that we somehow get away. You know. We can 
pursue our unreconstructed habits, or somehow we can prove the exception. You know, it's the famous. Um, it's it's the famous Mullah Nasruddin, you know, undoing a, a box of peppers and kind of biting into each one and putting it down and biting the next one. And his friend comes and asks, "What are you doing?" And he says, "Well, I'm looking for the sweet one." Yeah. So I am basically not accepting the fact that the nature of peppers is not sweet, but is spicy and burns my tongue and makes my uh, mucuses uh, basically go into a uh, panic. So the insistence that if we just keep looking more deeply in the box and keep doing more of the same, there will be one against all reason, against all experience that will be sweet. Sometimes we do that. It's more easy to recognize in others than in oneself. <laughs> but I trust you, you will have discovered that you may do that yourself. And sometimes when we actually acknowledge that this is just a box of peppers and they will not be sweet, under no circumstances will they taste sweet, um, uh, we can stop. Yeah. So, The next dimension of ignorance is that we simply lack information. There are stuff that we don't know. We haven't made the dot, we haven't connected the dots. We haven't, there's things we take for granted or there's things we are faced with and we do not understand how it works. If we do understand how it works, then it's better. Yeah. I lived a few years in Thailand and people were telling me that malaria comes from bad water which is fairly obviously not true. Uh, there's some very fine malarial doctors in Thailand. They, um, there's no lack of information there, but if you do not have access or if you do not bother to access this information, you may believe malaria indeed comes from bad water. It doesn't come from bad water. It comes from a parasite that is transferred by the female of Anopheles, a mosquito, uh, that lives under certain conditions and that female, when getting blood from you, injects a little something into you to make you feel less of the injection uh, and so that it can, in greater calm, uh, draw your blood and thereby implanting you with the parasite. That is very well documented. Uh, if you don't have the parasite, uh, if you don't have enough conditions for this particular mosquito, you don't have malaria. You need the mosquito, you need people who are infected with malaria and you need enough forest for the mosquito to live there. The mosquito also likes water, so that's probably where the connection comes from, but no amount of drinking bad water can give you malaria. It can give you other things, yeah. <laughs> Not malaria. So <laughs> if you know this, you know better how to protect yourself and you stop being afraid of uh, getting malaria from water. So this piece of information can take make, can be a game changer. Yeah? Often enough, it's not the information we're lacking. We have plenty of information. In fact, if your life resembles mine, then you probably drown in information. I need strategies to cope against information overwhelm. I have tons of data. The question is not data. The question is how to aggregate data in ways uh, that, um, as Chaya said the other night, we arrive at... Chinta Maya Panya at an organic type of knowing that comes from having organic 
aggregated data where one th where things have the bits of pieces that I know have become of one piece of a, uh, a coalesced type of knowing that when I get new information it just it doesn't just add another idea on the pile of ideas but it becomes actually an organic whole a body of organic applicable knowledge this is the best possible way often uh, drowning in information drowning in data we don't know how to aggregate this what of this belongs where how to make use of it so there's a type of ignorance and i'd be very surprised if this isn't part of your life and struggling around this is how to from the amount of information i have to sift and find the relevant bits and make it useful for me we all know tons of stuff, we have tons of access to information, but how to make it useful, how to order this, how to aggregate this, how to correlate this, how to make it a pragmatic body of knowledge out of a pile of data. Yeah. This is a type of ignorance. Not knowing how to do this means I'm just drowned out by data and information. And I kind of, after a while, I just overwhelm and then something goes numb and then I usually act on impulse, you know, turn away, uh, follow my anxieties or my greed <laughs> or one of my deeply conditioned patterns, usually well documented for their ineffectiveness. <laughs> and in the face of a data overwhelm, I fall back onto some very uh, rudimentary patterning in my own psyche. There's a, another type of ignorance that has to do with knowing things and yet not having the skill to live from that knowledge. That's a particular type of painful ignorance. Uh, and much learning in my books happens in that painful zone where I know better, but I still don't find it possible to live from that uh, better know knowing. Yeah? I kind of, I fall flat in implementing because I don't have the strength or the courage or the the stamina to live by what I actually know. To have the insights converted into genuine wisdom or you know have the stuff that I have understood maybe on a cognitive or even partly experiential level percolate down into my being to the extent that I truly from the bottom of my heart have metabolized that type of understanding. So I, I behave more ignor ignorantly than I actually am. You know, When things go wrong, I exactly know why they go wrong. I know better than anybody else. <laughs> I could tell you where I lost my game. You know, It's particularly, it, it's peeving, isn't it? So these are, these are differing flavors of ignorance, and uh, it's a strange word. Do think of these many-tiered uh, dimensions when you hear the term ignorance, uh, because the term itself has an almost metaphysical flavor. It sounds like, you know, ignorance is the beginning of all bad things. Uh, like the French uh, poet Rabelais says so beautifully, ignorance est mère de tout mot, you know, all evils begin with ignorance. Um, how does sati help? Well, sati helps to target that, these types of ignorance at every of those levels I just mentioned. And sati does that 
Let me speak about sati in very psychological terms tonight without Pali. And sati does a number of things. I hope you have to some degree understood that we're quite hot about this. You know, we're, we're, we're championing the mindfulness world, but we like the mindfulness world to, um, to acquaint itself more with some of the, the depth and the breadth of the notion of mindfulness. I understand that mindfulness needs to be defined to be tested. And uh, I'm happy that on the basis of such tests, money is found and on the basis of such money, projects are started. I'm very happy for this, but I'm, uh, keen that at least people who teach mindfulness and who have made a passion of mindfulness in their lives um, understand the broader root work, uh, how this mindfulness in Buddhist psychology is connected to other functions of mind. So let me spell out a few functions I see mindfulness in Buddhist psychology to have. I've I've basically have a list here. One is a psychological function and one is an experiential quality. Yeah. So uh, I personally think the most simple way, not a translation, but a simple uh, way to understand mindfulness is that it is something like an attuned attentional relationship. A relationship to something to someone, some inner or outer process. If I am mindful, I am in relationship, in a conscious, in an attuned relationship. There's two big dimensions in which mindfulness can be trained. One of them is basically temporal continuity. I learn to stick with things longer than I usually do for immediate gratification. We're all to some degree at attentive. I think we've distinguished attention and mindfulness. And one of the magic things before mindfulness becomes mindful, it means attentional continuity has to reach a stage of fluency. Yeah. Attention has to become fluid, a fluid continued attention. The magic begins when our attention stops being episodic and actually has the stamina to stay with things in time. Yeah rather than just usually Vedana propelled, we're interested in the bit of something pleasant just before it reaches climax and as soon as over the hump, we quickly get disenchanted with it and tire and move on to the next thing. Yeah? So according to the Vedana-induced pattern and governance of our attention, we end up being with things only just before they hit their climax. Yeah? The good bit. When the good bit ends, I'm not interested. Eating is a classic. You just just look at what point you decide the next mouthful goes in. Yeah. Who is interested in staying with the fading of a sensation of taste in his mouth while he keeps chewing? Yeah. Your, your eyes go ahead. What's the next morsel? What's the next bit? What am I doing now? This was rice. Now I'm going for broccoli. Yeah. We're moving on. We're moving away. Now... Temporal continuity means I'm going to linger longer with one process, thereby instilling, my mind, instilling in my mind greater reality, namely the reality of things changing, of things ending, of things tapering off. This is crucial. 
The other big dimension of practice for mindfulness, and Buddhist traditions have generally done both, all some traditions have favored more one over the other, but all <coughs> big authentic traditions have understood both are needed. The second one is spatial stability. Yeah? Rather than just training mindfulness in duration and staying longer with things, I'm actually stabilizing a field awareness in such a way that in that field things can arise and can disappear again without my attention collapsing onto the object, onto the event. Yeah? So all Buddhist meditation practices basically fall, you can split them along those two lines. Training temporal continuity, learning to stay with it, taking you to deeper samatha for example, deeper in investigation, deeper object focus, or spatial stability, taking you to a bigger open space, an awareness type uh, quality of mind that does not collapse anymore onto the individual process, onto the individual object. Yeah. So we have a number of psychological functions. One of them would be deliberate attention. Yeah? That's the easy bit. Attention can be open or focused. It can be wide, it can be specific, it can be broad, yeah. very clear. Mindfulness has as part of itself something called deliberate and something called attention. Mindfulness has something vigilant. Yeah. There's a degree of vigilance in mindfulness. That means it's mobile, that means it's scanning, that means it's awake, that means it's observant. Yeah. Vigilance alone is not mindfulness, but there is something vigilant in mindfulness. If mindfulness is so rigid and fixated that it doesn't notice when anything outside of its program happens, it's no longer mindfulness. It's called obsession yeah? or fixation. Then we have something called resonance in mindfulness. As we have all insisted, and Chris will going to say more about this tomorrow, the human mind is resonant. We are capable of experience empathetic connection. We are probably homo empathicus, you know. Our brain development hinges on empathy. It hinges on the fact that we care for each other enough. You know? Involving the male and the upbringing for, of, of, of youngs, young animals has, has been a major evolutionary step, you know, which made it possible that uh, parental duties can be shared. Um, Involving grandparents in upbringing, meaning looking after old people even though they can't run and hunt and jump anymore, uh, has given us a huge evolutionary advantage. Certainly having the experience of another generation that goes on, that we pass on to our children or grandchildren, is a huge evolutionary advantage. Um, finally, um, you know, there's great correlations between the development of neocortex and some of the physical problems that go with this bigger heads that need to move through female pelvises and that leave little kids uh, fairly undeveloped. You know, if you have little kangaroos that get born, they kind of after birth, they just crawl up mommy's hairy leg and find their uh, the pouch and find the nipple and that's fine. They do that on their own. If you do that with human beings, they die. Yeah? They need a lot of maintenance before they... Um, well, the nipple is generally okay, but before they kind of clamber somewhere or look after themselves, like little kangaroos do. So this only is possible through enough empathetic 
capacity in the social field around a mother and the newborn that is capable of looking and maintaining this, you know. This is not just a Buddhist soft uh, cell or so. This is, you know, this is stuff. It's very clear that the amount of brain we can carry and the amount of uh, development that go into a human uh, helpless being that is totally sensitive and that is highly in need of care and stimuli uh, that entail not just a mother to be there but that entail a family to be there or a, a larger ideally a larger group only our recent times has kind of shrunk this project to nuclear family uh, every sensible culture and tradition i know of has has understood this entails a bigger unit rather than just mom and dad and uh, the little one um, this is directly due to our capacity to empathy without that we don't know what's going on with others we don't care what's going on with others and if we don't care and we don't know and we're not interested they're not here to help yeah what do you think how much effort it is taken to build ims or you know you're sitting on the efforts of 40 years of work the smoothness of the organizational procedure here you know this thousands of people have gone through here have left little notes and all this yeah there's a lot of collective intelligence at work for you just to sit here and yeah so enough said on this we have other functions then we have the capacity of recollection that's a wonderful faculty that often is overlooked in mindfulness the capacity to bring something back that is lost yeah i wish you spoke german there's a wonderful german word for that it's called vergegenwärtigung means taking something back into the presence that was lost before you know it's the bit that tells you when you're completely lost that you're lost yeah <laughs> That bit says, you know, hey, there was something else. <laughs> right. Meditation. Breath. <laughs> Belly. Yeah. yeah. I've been doing something else for the last 15 minutes. Yeah. But even while being lost, you recall what you set out to do. This part is already part of mindfulness. If that part is also followed by bringing it back, you, you, you're a winner. You know, you have weakened a habit and you have strengthened uh, of distraction and you've strengthened the habit of, of of attending to your breath this capacity to recall and bring back something that is lost uh, what my friend john peacock sometimes calls recollection of the present moment which i love um, is a powerful feature of mindfulness uh, we have simple awareness i use awareness for the spatial dimension of sati if attention is the temporal dimension, the sticking with things, then awareness is something that speaks of the spatial dimension of sati. Yeah. Having a field awareness. You don't focus awareness. You don't direct awareness. Yeah. You don't zoom in with awareness. Awareness cannot be quantified or, or operated in that way. It speaks of a space in which things are allowed to take place. There's obviously intention in mindfulness. Uh, in Buddhist psychology, it's a sankara. Uh, so it has an intentional dimension. And that intentional dimension tells us something about impulses, which we can acknowledge, which we can enact, which we can deliberately apply. Uh, Buddhist psychology understands that sati is also the conscious 
application of such intention to bring things about. We're not just observing. Sometimes uh, mindfulness and also meditation teachers speak of mindfulness as if it was only a state. Yeah? It was only something we received if we did everything right. And then we were kind of mindful. And if bad things happen, we just all we can do is kind of sit there like paralyzed ducks and observe, observe, observe till we're blue in our face. But this is not true. The mindfulness in Buddhist teaching is something that is capable of intervening. It is capable of making much of something or it is capable of saying no to things. Remember the gatekeeper? Yeah. So this is a mindfulness that is capable of deliberately applying and modulating the content of our experience. We have something I would call presence, an embodied sensate presence. That's crucial. This being not just subject that has senses that tell us about the world, but actually that these senses themselves are in the milieu of body is a crucial part. Having access to the body's intelligence, to the sensate nature of the body, is an amazing anchor factor in our, in our mindfulness practice. With that factor, we can help ourselves in the face of strong emotion, in the face of overwhelming cognitive content. Having access or not having access makes often the difference how good we are in the saddle as meditation practitioners. I do have no trust whatsoever in any concentration that is not embodied. Yeah? It's brittle, it's treacherous, it may take you into some weird parallel dimension, it may take you in dissociated states. Unless you have access to your body, you have to be greatly on the guard what you're dealing with, because almost anything can pull you off. Yeah? Another component, I would think, is something called adherence. It's the tenacity, yeah? the capacity of the mind to keep seeking relationship, yeah? keep seeking its object, keep seeking connecting, yeah? the relational bit. This is the, uh, basically the attentional staying power uh, to a chosen object. And maybe lastly, I would call something like investigation. There is an inherent curiosity in mindfulness. It takes you to places you don't yet know. Yeah? It doesn't just tell you what you know. There's something uh, liminal. It takes you to the edge of that which is not yet sayable, not yet categorized, not yet uh, verbalized in your experience. So there's a kind of examining experiential inquiry. I, I sometimes call it affectionate curiosity, Some, something kind of, oh, how interesting, kind of, you know, this sort of childlike question or attitude. If all goes well, and this mindfulness is available, then it transforms our experience of dukkha in three simple ways. The first one, sati allows us to change the content of our experience on the object by making us choose. Yeah. If we know that we are attending to something, we can choose to attend something else. If I know that this is an angry state of mind, accompanied with unpleasant angry emotions in my heart area and angry thoughts and f memories in my mind, when I recognize this, I can deliberately choose to shift the channel. I can say, okay, 
I'm willing to have that anger, but I'm not willing to follow the angry thoughts. Let me have the anger in the body and stay with the burning, uh, pinching sensation in the pit of my stomach connected with the emotion of anger. This is a, a deliberate and intentional shift from one channel of experience into which I habitually would default, namely thinking, discursive. If you're angry, you think about either the same person who has made you countless times angry in previous years, yeah, or you think of other people who have made you equally angry. <laughs> yeah. And you basically have a movie running, either with this person who made you perpetually angry since you married them, or you <laughs> have a, a chain of people who just made you angry one after the other. You know? So you basically use your anger as the dominant quality, and then you montage on top of that dominant experience the story, the narrative. Yeah? And that's, either, that's how it usually works. Now, if you've done this a few times, and you know this is neither going to help you, nor make you feel better, nor be in any way constructive, you, you may risk the discomfort to give your attention counterintuitively to an unpleasant sensation in the pit of your stomach and just hover there, try to hang on there. And you will notice that anger actually can't feed itself on sensation. It can only feed itself on thought and image and memory and fantasy. It lifts its fodder comes from channel four. It doesn't come from channel one. If you shift your attention into channel one, it's unpleasant, but it will abate. It will de demonstrate impermanence a lot faster. You know, Rather than having a six-hour hate fantasy, <laughs> you're having a two-minute a two burning sensation in your pit of your stomach, and you will note that it abates. It may come back, you know, but it will abate, and you will have come out of your helplessness, you will have learned that an angry sensation doesn't kill you. You will have learned that you can do this, that you have a say, that you are not a victim of your anger temperament, you know, as they diagnosed you with or whatever. So this is an, an example of a deliberate choice of content. That's the first way in which sati can help you transform dukkha. It can help you transform basically the what of your experience. The second way in which sati can help you transform experience is somewhat different. It helps you, not the what of your experience, but it helps you transform the how you relate. Yeah? So you may decide that rather than um, relating to something unpleasant, something that hurts you or something that you're afraid of, um, with reactiveness, with your automatic response or reactiveness, you end, you change your attitude. You may decide that you're going to relate to a pain in your knee with a welcoming attitude. You can't love the guy, but you can say, okay, I allow you to stay here. Yeah. My lowest offer is coexistence. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to push you out. I'm not going to attack you. I'm not going to go into conflict mode. Really, affection is not really the word, but you can stay. Yeah. You have half of my knee. <laughs> Below that is no longer meta, yeah? So coexistence is the lowest possible level of meta. This is utterly counterintuitive, yeah? It goes against the grain. And yet, when you do that, you notice that something may shift. That pain suddenly may become more bearable. You can also do the, you know, the, the proof. You, if you want to turn it into an infernal experience, hate it. Just go in there, 
fight it. Say, you know, you're not going to be here. I'm stronger than you. Attack your knee. Attack the pain. <laughs> and look what happens, you know. Um, you'd be surprised how infernal an experience you can turn out of an ordinary little knee pain. So we change consciously our relationship to what we experience. We give up on the, on the what, we focus on the how. Yeah? You have all done this. Any metta meditation, any encouragement to be with pain, any willingness to hold an impulse that makes you itch or scratch or move is basically such a change of attitude. So that's the second big way. Sati helps you actually recall that you can reconsider the relationship, that you don't have to repeat reactivity, that you don't have to default onto aversion or grasping or fighting, that you can hold an experience rather than be held by it. The third big dimension in which sati is capable of transforming your relationship is um, the, more, the most difficult one. It is basically that you begin to relate differently to the place from which you experience. You begin to understand and loosen your grip on a self-construct, yeah. on an identity. You begin to question the place from which you have the experience. This means that you will probably have to look at conditionality. It means you have to probably look at what makes the build, how you construct who you think you are. Yeah. This takes a little work. It tends to be a little threatening because you uh, have invested a lot in the stability of this. And um, as, you, as is no secret, Buddhist uh, psychology assumes this construct is basically a fiction. Uh, and the problem with this, it's not that it's bad or immoral or something. The problem with this is that it doesn't exist. Yeah, that's... And because it doesn't exist, it needs a lot of convincing that it does exist. And it needs a lot of maintenance because it keeps crumbling away, keeps becoming translucent, keeps changing and faltering and uh, letting you in the lurch. So to keep shoring up your notion of a stable self and a substantial subject, you need to invest an awful lot of time and energy. And it's running away like sand between your fingers. So once you begin to reconcile with the fact of your insubstantiality and the impersonality of experiential processes, that place from which you experience this world becomes less constructed, less uh, uh, compacted, less uh, crystalline and painful. We probably could tease these out, but for tonight, uh, let me end here. Thank you for your interest and your patience. You're formidable after over an hour. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.